Well, good morning to everybody that is with us here physically in the room, and good morning to everybody online as well. My name is Matt, and I'm the guy that did not get the dress memo for the day. So, literally did not get the memo, and yet it's really okay because every time I wear a a jacket or a suit, people are like, who died, right? And, and I'm like, well, it's not Good Friday. We're not talking about the death of Jesus. We're talking about the birth of Jesus, so I have no jacket or suit. So it works out pretty good. So we as a church have been going through the holy days of Advent, right? And that's what I love about the season of Advent. It kind of reminds us it's not just a holy day, but it's a series of holy days. And every one of the Sundays of Advent celebrates a different facet of the story of God and the characteristics of God that are injected into the story. And so we look at the first Sunday and we see this idea of the peace of God. And then we look at the second Sunday and it's the hope of God. And then we look at the third Sunday, it's the joy of God. But today, this fourth Sunday, captures the essence of why God broke into the world. It's all of this concept of the love of God. The very characteristics of God, the very heart of God brought to bear into the human condition. That's what we are remembering and celebrating and contemplating today. And so as we prepare to just go through a story that is familiar, but in ways that hopefully kind of reinvigorate us, uh, I want to invite you to a moment of just silence. We've been doing this in Advent. We don't do it typically as a church, where we just create some silent space for us to reflect, to prepare our hearts for what God has for us today. But I'm going to do that right now. And so we're going to take a moment of silence. You can just pray where you're at in that silence. And then I will kind of pray a little bit and then we'll get into the story and how it's impactful for our lives. And so if you would join me right now, that would be wonderful. Jesus, we sing the story about it was a silent night and a holy night. And yet really, it was anything but silent. It was holy, but it was not silent. It was your inbreaking into the world with love. And it's what we need. I mean, I think about us right now together as a group of people and how we are all coming with different things. Some of us are having great days today. Some of us are having awful days today. Others are somewhere in between. We have things going on in our world that break our heart. There's things going on in our world that bring us great anticipation and joy. Life is diverse. But in that diversity, life is dependent on you. And so today, as we look at another angle of your great unfolding story, I pray that not only does it resonate with us and give us the strength that we need to continue to move forward in life with your focus, but also in that, that it would give us the rejuvenation that comes only from you. That it would remind us of our purpose in this world, that it's more than just the American dream, it's more than just getting by, it's more than just going to the next event or thing or purchasing the next item, but rather it is about your love in us unto the world in such a way that we bring transformation in your name 
as a people humble, as a people dependent, as a people fueled by your spirit and by your good news of the kingdom. I pray that that's what we are about as we reflect today on your coming into this world and what it means. And so we thank you, Jesus, for your great grace and for your love toward us that we think about today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I was thinking about Christmas, and one of the things that's interesting, I think, about this particular holiday versus some of the others is, A, it's protracted, right? So most holidays are just sort of a day. Christmas kind of takes up this giant chunk of our lives, and in that, it pulls in all of our senses, correct? Right? You see the lights, you see the bows, you see the tree, you have this sense of hearing the songs and the bells, you smell the pine, you taste the cocoa and the peppermint and the eggnog, and you feel the warmth, you feel the hugs, you feel the joy. It's like all of this holiday kind of enraptures all of our senses, And in this too, I think part of the reason that's the case and part of the reason we put so much time and investment into this holiday is because in some ways when we think about December 25th, it's this ideal day. It's this one singular moment that we go, man, that is the time where all of your your sense of being and all of your sense of what you anticipate is encapsulated into that singular moment. And as I think about that, I think about how often even that day is like our desire as human beings to recreate our sense of what Eden was probably all about right? Perfect hope, perfect peace, perfect joy, all in that space. I mean, think about it. We even put up a tree like it's Eden, right? We have our tree of life in our living rooms, and it's our Christmas tree because we're trying to recreate the essence of that perfect, blissful time in the human condition. And yet, when we think about Christmas and the very first Christmas, Advent, um, it's actually the loss of Eden that drives the Christmas story, In fact, we even have these songs that we sing, right? Come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. But if we're honest about what the first Christmas was all about and what it was driving, that song is actually, Come all ye faithless, joyless and defeated. Merry Christmas, you're welcome. See, I I think it's important when we celebrate this day to celebrate what that original day really was, what drove that original day, why God came into the world on that original day because the world wasn't perfect, it wasn't blissful, it wasn't the happiest day of the year. The world was actually broken and burdened and had blight all over its essence. See, that's why God comes into the world. We've learned throughout the Advent season that actually God embedded a promise back in Genesis 3 that he would come and he would bring with that promise true joy, lasting peace, enduring hope. All of which is spelled out and captured in the essence of redeeming love. See, that's why we capstone uh, the Advent season, the fourth Sunday, with love, because really that's the driver behind all of it. When we read through the Bible and we see the character of God, there's all these characteristics, but all of those characteristics are informed by and moved by the love of God. John tells us in a little teeny letter, God is love. And so everything God does is motivated by that. Joy is motivated by love. Hope is motivated by love. Peace is motivated by love. And so it's for love that we celebrate this idea of God coming into the world. 
that he comes as a small, little, helpless baby to helpless humans. But as we celebrate this and thinking about it, it's not just that he comes because he doesn't come as the God of honor necessarily and the guest of honor. That's not how he arrives into the world. We actually see that he comes as the servant of love. And when he comes as the servant of love, when you look at that particular night in the stories of Jesus, it doesn't really fit like a Hallmark card, right? We set up nativities at our home that are very ornate and quaint and beautiful, but, but that's not really the story. The story looks very different when you read about it. The night wasn't silent or calm or bright, wasn't postcard worthy in any sense, right? Here you have Joseph, this young man, maybe in his late teens, early 20s, he swings a hammer for a living, he's a blue-collar guy, uh, and, and suddenly God thrusts him into this story, right? And he's not a particularly interesting guy. We don't learn a lot about Joseph. He's just a regular guy, but he comes from a less-than-savory town. Nazareth is not the place that you want to grow up or be known that you're from, right? It's podunk, it's backwoods. Even the Piggly Wiggly's like, we're not going to put a store there. That place is too messed up, right? That's Nazareth. And then you have this other character in the story, Mary, this girl that's barely a teenager, right? She's untested, unproven, unsophisticated, right? She has not experienced life in any real profound way. Her life has always been in this small little community, and now God's like, I'm going to break into your lives and do something incredible, and I'm going to do it in such a way that shows how deeply I love the world and the way in which I'm willing to love the world. Because in the story, what you see is that God decides he's going to use two nobodies, from nowhere with nothing. And he's going to prove his love through that story. In fact, as I reflect on the real kind of gritty nature of the first Christmas, um, I, I, I can't help but think, wow, God chose to even use those dynamics as this illustration of the tone and temperament in which Jesus was coming. Like I said, he doesn't come as the guest of honor. He comes as the servant of love. And so even in the story, as you're kind of noting it and, and, and watching it unfold, there's this sense of humility and lowness in the Christmas story, which encapsulates the essence of how Jesus comes. In fact, there's a man named Paul, early Christian, right? A prolific writer of the New Testament Bible, and he writes about Jesus. And, he, and he's telling us in this little section of his letter, this is how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to take note of how Jesus came, and we're supposed to be like this, and then we take note of how Jesus came. He says in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And though he was God, he was elevated, he was perfect in every way, he did not think of equality with God is something to cling to. He wasn't going to live from his privilege. Instead, it says he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. And being found in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. 
And, and so what you have then in the story that we think about today is that God is willing to come as a nobody, be born to a couple of nobodies from nowhere, but he does it for a reason. He does it for a whole group of somebodies. People sitting in this room, people watching online, people all over the world. He does it for that reason. That's his calling and purpose. Now, from that, we can tend to look at the story of Mary and Joseph and this small child and everything else and say, wow, that's romantically quaint and, and sort of dramatic and how sweet that is. And, and yet, I, I don't want us to get lost in those weeds because actually, when you look at the story, what you should note is that it's a story of hardship. It's a story of fear. It's a, it's a story of pain. It's a story where you know you're going to be judged as the characters of the story in your real time and real space, and yet God's called you to this, and you're going to move forward and try to push past your fear and insecurity into faith. See, that's really what I see is the spirit of the story. I mean, think about this for a minute with Mary. When you read her accounts of things and what's being accounted for with her, she's afraid. She's terrified, right? She lives in a very puristic environment and now she's pregnant and she doesn't have a husband in marriage yet to do that. So she's going to be stigmatized. She's the teen mom of the town. She got knocked up by somebody and that's how they're going to see her. And then there's Joseph. And he's put in a weird spot because he's frankly overwhelmed. He hears the story that his engaged girlfriend to him, they're connected in that way, but not married yet, and he hears that he, she's pregnant, and so he's like, man, I can't continue with this relationship. I've got to break this off, because if I marry her, man, how am I going to be seen? And so he makes that plan, and then an angel comes and says, don't be afraid. Just as Mary was afraid, Joseph was afraid, and so he goes through with it, and he decides he's going to go ahead and marry her anyway. And there's a cost involved in that, because as soon as he says, all right, I'm going to go ahead and, and stay with the girl that was knocked up, the girl with the magic baby inside, right? He knows he's going to lose work, he's going to lose reputation, his family's going to look at him and say, dude, you're a sucker, man. You're marrying that girl? Everybody knows she's impure, right? That's his story in the story, just as her story in the story is, well, she's the, she's the loose one in town. Keep the story real, because that's where the story is real. And yet I look at that, and I can't help but think, it's amazing. Illustrated in the story is the mother's going to suffer, and the father's going to suffer, all of which, when we look in the Gospel of Luke, highlights the fact that this child is going to suffer. It's all there. Now, I think sometimes we have a tendency to think, well, the hardest part for Mary and Joseph was just saying yes, right? When the angel comes to Mary, once she says yes, it's going to be easier because at least that's the toughest part is to agree. Or when the angel comes to Joseph, the easiest part is that he says, all right, I'm going to marry her. Now they've gotten past the hard part. It's just smooth sailing from there, right? No. Saying yes was the easiest part. You continue to track the story, and it continues to become challenging. Like, we read it that because of a census, they have to travel from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem. And we go, oh, okay, they had to take a road trip. That's 100 miles. So here's Mary, 13, 14 years old, 
third trimester and she has to take a hundred mile trek because they're required to do this under the order of census. Here's what's amazing to me about this. Um, My oldest daughter, Honor, is in her third trimester right now. In fact, she's due on December 24th, right? She's carrying a little baby boy. So the Christmas story for me just has a little bit more like wowness to it, right? It's really cool. But imagine if my daughter and her husband had to travel from Duval to Yakima on foot in her third trimester. See, that's their story. So it's not quaint, it's not sweet. I know we're like, well, she rode a donkey. There's no donkey in the story. They just had to figure out a way to get there. And no sooner do they get there, what they find is she's actually going into labor, but there's no inn for her to labor in. So they're out of time, they're out of plans, they're, they're out of options. And so they do the best they can with what they get. They're given a cave that it has stench and animals, and that's where she gets to give birth. And just so you're clear on this, here's how that cave was unappealing. The shepherds are out in their fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. Why? Because that cave was dark, it was damp, it was not pleasant. You don't want to be in there. But that's where they are in the story. And I think about poor Joseph, right? In their culture, it wasn't like they trained you as a man to help a woman give birth. That didn't happen. So this is new to him as it would be to any guy in his circumstance. He's like, I work with hammers, I work with stone, I build things, I don't bring a child from my young wife's body, that's not what I do, I've got calloused hands, how can I take a hold of this child and do this thing? And so he's operating way out of his bandwidth. And typically for a young woman, you had your mother there or an aunt there, the other women of the family, she has none of that. So again, she's in this dark, cold cave, giving birth, nobody there really to support her. She's operating way outside her bandwidth as well. It's just tears and pain and blood and sweat and reality of life. That life is like that. Life is hardship and pain and challenge. They have nobody there to guide them or comfort them or hurt with them. But that's where God puts them in the story. That's the part that blows my mind. That all of that turmoil and all of that in-the-moment suffering is God's plan. I think that's the hardest thing for us to accept sometimes. I know it is for me that the hardship is a part of the plan. So that's the plan. And so here comes this precious child, this baby who is God, the slave king. Right? Remember we learned that in Philippians? He came as not just a servant, but really a slave, and then he submits himself to God's plan, even in suffering unto death unjustly. That's the whole story. And so he exchanges rags, or rather he exchanges his robe for rags, gives up his throne for a feeding trough and gives up the heights of heaven for a cave to be his nursery. I mean, that's that's how God does things. And so the first Christmas, it reminds us that our world is a broken place and life is a fragile thing. It shows us how desperate the human condition really was. 
But in that, it shows just how personal and intimate our God is when it comes to love. Like if we had all divine power, we'd probably just go like snapping our fingers to fix the problems, right? Like, hey, fixed, done, over, corrected, boom, bam, done, right? Like that's the way we would roll. But God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to get in the mix. I'm going to actually come through the birth canal of a young girl and I'm going to be raised by these somewhat impoverished people from a dumpy town and I'm going to be in the condition with them. I'm going to feel what they feel. I'm going to suffer as they suffer. I will be tempted as they're tempted so that I can show mercy and grace in their time of need. That's the story of Christmas. That's what he comes to do in and through us. And so Jesus trades his privilege and his comfort and his status as he comes into the world on that advent. And the question is, well, why? Why does he do it? Well, the answer is really simple. You should say to yourself, he does it for me. You could say that right now. Why did he do all this? He did it for you. He literally did it for you. Like, you mattered so much. You had such value to him, he's willing to come and do it for you. Not just willing, he wants to, he longs to. He's chopping at the bit to go and do it. It's like the son says to the father, let me go, let, let, let me accomplish this task. Let me show them how much we love them. And understand, this love that God shows is not just some kind of sappy or sentimental love. It's not just, hey, love ya. Right? No, it's deep affection. It's conviction. It's a relentless pursuit and desire to rescue us from our hurt, from our shame, from our failures, to rescue us even from our worst selves. In fact, Paul, in a letter called Ephesians, writes this. He says, once, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. He says, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. That was just the human condition, right? We were not interested in the things of God. We were indifferent. But it's in the indifference that then there's this intervention and God pursues us in his love even if we're rejectors he pursues the rejectors we turn our back and he comes around and gets in our face that's the story of Christmas and so while we were against God God was for us and so no sooner does Paul say this is what we were this is what we did this is our challenge it says in verse 4 of Ephesians 2 but God and, and I love that little but God. It's meant to jar us. When we were against, but God was for. When we were indifferent to mercy, but God showed mercy. And so, but God, so rich in mercy, and because he loved us so much, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ up from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So God steps in, God intervenes, God cares, because God loves in fact, John, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, wrote this. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So if you want to know how much God loves you, that's the level of conviction that he displays. God loves us so much, he comes 
He lives among us. He suffers with us as we suffer. He experiences our humanity in a way that is just mind-boggling as God to do that. And then goes even further and serves and dies for us. In love for us. That's the Christmas story. But the story goes on. It's not just that he loves you and dies in love for you, gives himself for you in love, but he does this to then bring into the world and bring into our lives a world-shaping love. So he loves you so much, he proves it to you so as to transform you by that love so that you, in turn, live out that love. Right? He puts it in you, for you, for the sake of others. So no sooner does Paul say this in Ephesians chapter 2 than then he goes into chapter 3 with some follow-up. He says, starting in verse 14, He says, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. He says, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. I go, great, why? He says, well then, Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him and your roots will go down deep into God's love and it will keep you strong. Moreover, May you then have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love really is. And go, great, why? He says, so that you can experience the love of Christ that is too great to fully understand. I go, well, great, well, why? He says, well, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. Here's what's cool about this to me. He wants you and I to know just how wide and long and high and deep his love is so that it's our conviction, so that it motivates us and moves us every single day, that it gives us the strength that we need to endure and the strength we need to give that to others. That is the essence of why he came into our hurt, our pain, our humanness, our dysfunction, our grief, to unveil a love that has no limits. And he unveils a love without limits so that we, in turn, can unveil to others that that same love without limits. We are deeply loved so we can deeply love, right? We are conduits, not cul-de-sacs, of God's love. And I think this love is to play out in three basic ways. The first, this love without limits, is to be directed toward God. Right? God loves us, so we in turn can love him. Jesus says this, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And then his follower John says this, loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So when you bolt these together, we go, yes, I'm supposed to love God, but in loving God, what God calls me to, I shouldn't look at it and say, what a drag, what a bummer, what a burden, it's so hard, it robs me of my agenda by doing his agenda. No, we should be like, man, I so love God, I can't wait to do what God calls me to do. Now, here's the thing about this. Both from Jesus and from John, they ground their definition of loving God in a context. Right? Context is what is surrounding a statement. And in both places, in Mark and in 1 John, 
It grounds it in expressing love toward others. The way you show you love God and it's not burdensome to love God is you love the people around you. So the way we genuinely love God is by loving others. And that's kind of the second element of how we love without limits. We direct that love toward those who I would say maybe even love us. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. From this he says, dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. See, that's pretty profound because, again, as a pastor for a long time, I see how often people who claim the name of Jesus have dysfunctional relationships. People who claim the name of Jesus get at odds with one another. People who claim Jesus don't forgive, don't go the extra mile to handle those things. It's like we sometimes can lose that. We can lose that as fellow Christians. We can lose that in families. But when we reflect on just how deeply God loves us, it should motivate us to love those around us. And the way we genuinely follow God's commands is we love those around us. And so this love has been given to us so we can love God and so we can love those who are lovely and maybe love us in return. But then there's one that's far more challenging, far more complicated. And it's this idea that this love without limits that's given to us is to be directed toward those who don't love us. Right? This is the real hallmark of the day. Jesus says this, but to you who are willing to listen, which is a big thing right there. Some of us go, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it, Jesus. I know where you're going. You don't know some of the people I know. They're jerks, they're punks, they're thugs, they're nerds, they're whatever. I don't want to part. But he says, but if you're willing to listen, I say to you, love your enemies. Well, what do you mean by loving my enemy? Tolerate them? Put up with them? He says, oh, no, here's what I mean. Do good. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Now, here's the thing about this that's so important, because I always look at passages and I go, well, why? Why do I have to do that? The answer's simple, because that's the love he showed us. Right? The book of Romans talks about this. When we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. When we are enemies of God, Jesus came for us. When we are haters of God, God loved us. And so he says, man, if you've sensed my love, you've experienced the depths and heights and breadth of that love, man, you've got to show that. And not just to the lovely, you have to show it to those who are not lovely toward you. In fact, the real proof that the gospel matters and changes lives is our ability to love those who we don't see eye to eye with who don't see the world as we do, who maybe don't see the world as we do and they actually stand against us for the way we see the world. Man, real powerful love is to love that. And by love, it's do good for, pray, and bless. Because again, that's what God did for us. And so when we do all three, when we love God and we love the lovely and we love the enemy, here's the good news about that. You don't just have to just suffer and grin and bear it. No, when we do that, we experience a deeper sense of the love of God that motivates us to this even more. In fact, in John chapter 15, Jesus says this. He says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. So remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, 
You remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments, and I remain in his love. Now, here's what's important there. In the context, obeying the commandments is not just being moral, ethical, good people. Oftentimes, in John's writings, to obey the commandments is to obey the command to love. That's what he means by this. Loving God, loving others, loving even your enemies. He says, but I've told you this, so that when you do these things, you will be filled with my joy. Yes, and your joy will overflow. See, I think we tend to think that if we love in these radical ways, just as God has radically loved us, that somehow we're going to lose something for it. We're giving up something. We're not standing our ground. We're being too tolerant. We're being too easygoing. We're being too wishy-washy or too flimsy. And, and yet he says, no, I'm telling you, this is how it's done. I did it for you. And if you do it, you will have joy. See, Jesus didn't come to a world that wanted him. Jesus came to a world that needed him. Jesus didn't love a world that wanted to be loved. He loved a world that needed to be loved. And so when we think about the first Advent, the first Christmas, it's a message of radical, reckless, relentless love. So that we would know love, so we could express love. And so here's the thing about life. Life's going to throw all kinds of stuff at you, right? It's going to throw some really beautiful things. It's going to throw some really ugly things. It's going to give you people that fill your, your balloon and your bucket, and it's going to give you people that drain you and drive you crazy and everything in between. And all of those conditions and circumstances are an opportunity to love. So when life isn't fair, you still have to love. When people are difficult, you still have to love. When people mistreat you or malign you or, or frustrate you, you, you still have to love. In fact, if anything, I don't want to even say you have to love. What I'd rather say is you get to love. You get to embody what it is that God did for you and for me. We actually get to incarnate the kind of love that God showed on one night 2,000 years ago by bursting onto the scene in a lowly way to show us the definition of love. Love in the flesh for us. That's what we have the opportunity to do. And so I close this morning with the reminder of what love is. It's read at weddings everywhere, which is too bad because it should be read every day by all of us. It says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way, right? It's not irritable. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It's always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. See, that's the love that God has for us so that we can show that love toward others. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you broke into this world as it was. You didn't wait for it to clean up its act. You didn't wait for it to be lovely or pleasant or thoughtful or thankful. You came in its brokenness. You loved us in our brokenness. You shared in our brokenness. And while you did not violate a single rule, you love those who are awesome at breaking all the rules. May we be your kind of people because of what you've done for us. We're imperfect, we're flawed, we're gonna do it poorly so often, but I pray that we are motivated by this. 
and that we are moved by you. And so, Jesus, we thank you for your love, for your hope, for your peace, for your joy. And I pray that we will pursue the things that only magnify those more in our lives and get us in tune with you. And so we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for this season. We thank you for your love in your name. Amen.